Growing your business is tough, but don't worry, we've got you covered. We interview industry experts on how they've solved their most challenging business problems in SaaS or e-commerce. No fluff, just step-by-step playbooks to help you dominate your market and crush the competition. This is the How We Solve podcast. Here's your host. Hey everyone, Dave here with the How We Solve podcast. I'm sitting with Travis, not literally sitting, but we're, you know, we're, we're talking. Travis Steffens. Travis is a serial entrepreneur with seven successful exits and a few crash and burn failures to his name. He currently serves as the CEO of Growflow, an industry-leading venture-backed suite of software products for cannabis companies. Travis, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm uh, doing good. Thank you for asking. Thank you for asking. I'm excited about this. I've worked with a couple cannabis companies from a services side but not from a software side. So I know a little bit about the industry, but tell me tell me about Growflow. Give us a little bit more of an introduction to, to the company. Yeah, Growflow is about three years old. Uh, we've got about 55 full-time employees today. We do compliance, inventory management, point of sale, analytics, and sales tools for cannabis companies at various points in the supply chain. We service growers, producer processors, distributors, retailers, and dispensaries. That's awesome. That's, uh, as I mentioned uh, in the introduction, that is like a suite of products uh, for the cannabis industry. I'm assuming that it wasn't always like that, that probably you've kind of expanded over the years. When you first started, what what did it look like? So I actually was not the, the founder of Growflow. Our founder, Rufus Casey, went through, uh, he and his co-founder went through an accelerator program that I was a mentor at. And they basically just did everything that, that I, I said. They came back to me and said, what do we do next? And so I just basically started working with them every week for about an hour, an hour once a week. They just did everything by the book. Uh, it worked. And after a couple of years, they came to me and they said, look, we don't believe we're the right people to scale the company and take care of the shareholders. In the company is a lot more powerful than we are as managers. We would like to do what we're best at, which is build and be creative. So we're looking for experienced leaders to come on. I had recently just raised money for um, another company that I had started. And that company was going through some challenges uh, from a cap table perspective, not like not related to the actual product that we're taking some time to sort out. So I was like, you know, I'm going to come on as interim CEO until we find somebody to actually take, take the role full time. But after a couple of months, it was just very clear that there was so much potential for the company. You're right. The company started just servicing growers in the state of Washington, just doing compliance and inventory management. Since then, it's it's grown into, like, we have well over a thousand customers across 10 states. And we just raised an eight and a half million dollar round on April 1st. And the future is really bright. Congratulations on that raise, by the way. And that's a really interesting story. Uh, I haven't talked to many people where they were sort of a mentor and then they became the CEO like that. That doesn't happen that often. It does not. Especially, it doesn't, it doesn't happen that startups' leadership will proactively step aside. This was not a board action. It wasn't something where they were failing. They were actually succeeding, but they were recognizing their own limitations. They're still both you know, full-time team members that are instrumental in what we do and we have gr- a great relationship. So it's, it's a very unique situation. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times as founders, we lack the the self-awareness, the ability to kind of maybe put our ego aside a bit and recognize that there might be a better person to do this job than us. And also that we just have different passions than the ones we're currently pursuing and we'd be happier doing something else. So props to those guys for what seems to be making like a good call. You know, the cannabis industry, obviously it's 
super hot right now, but also comes with a lot of challenges. So we shouldn't just think of it as uh, any sort of slam dunk. Tell me about some of the challenges of working in the cannabis industry that you've experienced. It's a highly regulated industry. So the microscope that you're under from a legal perspective is pretty significant. And I came from another highly regulated industry before this from the gambling industry. So we were no stranger to regulation. The big difference in cannabis is legislation is proceeding overwhelmingly in favor of the operator, basically across the board at varying speeds. But the biggest challenge is that every state's enforcement and compliance activities are very different uh, from state to state. Their licenses apply to different things. And the pace of legislation and also the, the, the pace and magnitude of enforcement of that legislation are different from state to state. The B2G software each state uses to keep operators in compliance, those are different and they're not easy to work with at all. So if you're a vertically integrated operator, if you're a multi-state operator, if you're a larger company, it's a significant expense to just keep your doors open and to just stay compliant with laws. But at the end of the day, it's, it's also a bit of a moat around you know, what we do and what our customers do, because it's not the easiest way to make money. There are easier ways to make money than playing in a very highly regulated space that you know, still banking is a challenge for a lot of our customers. You don't see them able to use a lot of mainstream payment processing services. Most retailers don't accept credit cards or debit cards. You're still dealing with cash or you're using some sort of some sort of mobile ATM solution right there in the in the facility. So it makes the payment side of things challenging as well. There are, you know, quite a few nuances that pose challenges above and beyond something that's just a little bit more mainstream and the difference is there's a lot less competition as a result. Yeah, and I mean it sounds like that's also part of the opportunity, is it not? I mean, your software is a at least part of it is compliance tools, right? So the the, the, the complexity of the compliance in the industry is provided maybe an opportunity for your software to kind of come in and be a solution to this. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the main things that, that we do. It's, there are some things that we do that aren't necessarily, I would deem to be essential for regular business operation. Any sales tools we have, you don't have to use sales tools to actually legally operate. You can do things manually, you can do things by hand, things like that. Same thing with analytics. You can completely ignore your data and sometimes you can stay afloat. Uh, you won't likely do very well, but you could probably stay afloat if you've got other circumstances that line up. But the compliance piece is across the board something that every operator has to go through. And they'll either have to deal with the very painful, slow, unstable, and not user-friendly B2G platforms that the government is contracted with, or they use a platform as a service over top of them like us to make their life a lot easier and to save a lot of money and time. So it sounds like a no-brainer when you present it like that. Like, Why wouldn't a business use uh, your software? What type of kind of pushback do you get from customers? If the problem is so clear, so real, and the other solutions kind of are, are poor, I'm curious, is it, uh, is it just, hey, we just need to get people to know about us, but once they hear of what we do, they kind of jump on board? Or are there still some additional reservations that businesses have sometime? We do have a couple competitors. Uh, we are not the cheapest solution out there by any means. We primarily try to focus upstream. We, we focus on the enterprise and middle market. But Growflow did start off 
focusing on small businesses. So one reason that people might not sign up with us or might not stick around is if they become very price sensitive. If they're a very early operator that needs just basic compliance tools to even be in operation whatsoever, and they don't have income from any other source, if they're an entrepreneur that this is their first business and they don't, they don't have a day job or something like that, Growflow might not be the best solution for them just from a, a price perspective, because we are probably you know two to three times as expensive as our cheapest competitor. The biggest difference is you know we are more stable, we're faster, we have higher quality, we do a lot more. So that would be one reason that somebody wouldn't go with Growflow if they're very, very early, or maybe they are a smaller operation, boutique operation that hasn't harvested yet and has no revenue it wouldn't make as much sense for them as if they're an established business with existing customers. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's obviously important like within a market to kind of define that ideal customer that they are sizable enough for the solution to make sense for them. You know, how have you guys gone about finding these cannabis operators? I imagine that they, they have a large range from, yeah, maybe like an individual kind of operated to a larger enterprise. How have you kind of gone about finding them and introducing them to your services? Well, we have a direct sales team that does a lot of prospecting. We do a lot of cold calling. We do uh, some digital marketing, some basic digital marketing to drive leads. We also have a, a lead generation and uh, data enrichment service that we that we use that's been super helpful. The best thing about marketing in cannabis for a company like ours is the customers are pretty well defined. They have to be licensed operators. And in some states, that information is publicly accessible information. For example, you know, state of like Washington State, for example, license holders, all the, the roster of license holders is publicly available to anyone. In other states, you have to, you know, file certain things to get access to, you know, at the very least, just the business names. And then we will just use data enrichment to find contact information. And then there are varying ways to generate leads and reach out to them in each state because there are just nuances between each each individual one. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Just kind of hitting the pavement, I guess, with uh, you know lead generation and the fact that that information is public is also uh, a nice advantage. So you had mentioned you know, that you guys have expanded the suite of products uh, that there's now you know analytics and sales enablement also as part of uh, the Growflow you know suite. Uh, so when did that kind of expansion happen? How did, what was the decision-making process like behind that? Basically, uh, the logic behind it is we want to serve the customer more deeply based on their feedback. The company achieved product market fit by being really customer-driven, by surveying the crap out of customers and just trying to figure out what it is they are experiencing in terms of challenges and we also do keep an eye on on competition and you know use that to seed some ideas for surveying. If a co- if a competitor comes out with a feature that we were previously hadn't heard from our customers on as as something that they were interested in, we'll add that to our surveys and and figure out hey is this something that you know they came up with on their own as an idea or is this a customer driven demand? And it's kind of split sometimes. Sometimes customers won't know what they wanted until they see it. Sometimes they, it won't make sense for them at all. So we try to just talk to customers as much as possible. So we'll expand when we realize there's a clear gap just based on their feedback. 
I'm always curious uh, because uh, I've, I've had a number of businesses and I, I'm always a little worried about specializing on a particular industry. I always feel like uh, maybe I'm limiting my options. And I'm sure a lot of other people listening out there might think the same. I'd like to hear about some of the pros and cons of, of really working specifically in an industry like, and not just necessarily that it has to be cannabis, but just the specificity of targeting a customer and saying, hey, no, we're not doing compliance or analytics or sales for other types of industries. I guess what I'm saying is, uh, you know, the pros and cons of specializing with your software for uh, the cannabis industry. Maybe do you ever have customers from another industry say, hey, this software looks interesting. I'd like to give it a try. And maybe could it work for me? No, we don't really see that that often just because the, the product itself is so specifically built for exactly the problem that, that it's trying to solve. Other companies in other sectors don't have the they, some of them have compliance burdens, but it looks very different in terms of the solution. It's possible that down the road, maybe we, we expand into some other highly regulated industry. But right now, the way that the laws are written for cannabis specifically, you know, anytime there's any sort of chain of custody difference along the, the supply chain or anything like that, that all has to be reported to the state. Any movements of product, any status change in a product, for example, in in most markets, if you change, like change the shelf in the same room that a product sits on, that's something that has to be reported to the state. It gets that granular in terms of the movement. They want to make sure that you know the government knows every single place that every plant is in, basically forever until it gets to the customer. And even when it gets to the customer, they need to know who bought it. So, you know, everything is tracked and it's not the same sort of pain or burden in other industries as it is for cannabis today it does definitely have the, the specialization like i said is also a moat and that nobody else really can kind of enter that market because you have to just deeply understand it i'd like to switch gears for a little bit uh talk a little bit about your book viral hero and just virality in general um, i have it down here in your bio that you adopted a different way of building products by building the viral loops first and then finding the product details that kind of fit in those structures. I'd like to, you know, talk more about that. I don't know if that that relates to Growflow or not, but feel free to draw from maybe any of the other businesses that you've worked on. So, Viral Hero basically is a guidebook, a roadmap for founders, for growth leads, for product architects that are wanting to architect a product from the ground up to be viral. It's a common misconception that viral marketing is just about you know content on YouTube or TikTok or something like that that a lot of people view. Um, that's how it's that's how the term is used. It's it's inaccurate. If you think about the dynamics of a virus, as we all know in this COVID-laden world we're living in, you know a virus. The way it works is it infects a host, and then the host exposes that virus to the people that they interact with. And that curve becomes exponential because the more people that person interacts with, the more people get exposed, the more people get infected, and that they become hosts themselves. If you think about viral marketing, that's effectively what it should describe. And unfortunately, it's been used so often to describe content that just freaks out and goes wild that that's really all people think about. However, if you think about a service like, for example, Dropbox, where there is inherent product value in using that, that tool with other people that you would not be able to reap unless you were inviting them. 
doesn't feel like you're marketing them. doesn't feel like a, a cheesy referral engine where someone's paying you $10 for every customer that you drive for them. It's core product value that you're building into the bones of, of your product from day one and that you're augmenting and optimizing that drives growth for you. Every single person that gets exposed to a, a collaborative tool like Dropbox, for example, is seeing it as, hey, this is value I can gain from interacting with others on top of it. Once they get exposed to it, they want to go become a host and infect others. So in a way, we can learn as entrepreneurs from viruses. In, in the book, I, I go through a bunch of actual viruses and had, did a lot of work on epidemiology and reviewing ways other viruses spread, breaking down, okay, how can we learn from these as entrepreneurs to take something that's like profoundly negative and use it to grow our business instead? How can we learn from you know, the CDC and from virologists and epidemiologists on how they you know, make populations immune to certain viruses and then apply the inverse to our companies and say, how do we reduce immunity from our message when it's being spread to potential hosts? So it's a different way of thinking about product architecture that and I outlined 12 different engines. The one I talked about with Dropbox right there was just one of 12. It's a different way to think about building products. It's not something where you can just bolt on a SaaS tool and catalyze virality in, in a product. Believe me, I've tried. We've actually built a product specifically for this and it, it was not effective because it has to be something that's like built deep into the bones of a product from, from the very beginning. Something very inherent, yeah, as opposed to like, hey, we're going to add a referral program on this product uh, tomorrow, that type of a thing. Talk to me a little bit about virality in the B2B space. Uh, you mentioned Dropbox. Um, I, I believe they have Dropbox for business, but I generally think of it more as a B2C company. And often I just associate virality more with consumers. Consumers are more likely to tell their friends different things. But is there a place for virality in B2B? 100%. I mean, if you look at a tool like Slack, for example, it uses in inherent virality. There is zero value in using Slack alone, right? So it's only by collaborating with others on Slack that, and, and in B2B, oftentimes people don't refer to it as viral marketing. You're going to hear the term network effects. It's the same thing. It really is. It's the same. If you, if you rewind and say, all right, I'm going to think about phones, there is zero value in using a phone by yourself. It's only when other people also use phones and you can call them or text them where that network becomes value. And the more, more people who are using it, the more value is incurred by also being on it. So most B2B tools where you can collaborate with people or communicate with people, that becomes major source of viral marketing. But the magic behind it is it doesn't feel like it. It feels like you're just reaping core product value. And that's really where where the value is had. Other examples could be, you know, for example, open virality. If you're a marketplace that's con connecting buyers and sellers, you're getting buyers who are listing their wares. Let's say, let's just take a look at the App Store, for example, Apple's App Store and, and iTunes, who Apple was struggling before they launched the App Store and iTunes. Now they're one of the most successful companies in the world by far. But before that happened, it was a closed system. And once they had iTunes, for example, content creators would list their content and then they would push people, they would push their audience proactively to consume their content through that medium. 
And at the same time, when those when their audience came, they also then went out to explore other content that was on there. And yes, artists can absolutely reap pretty significant benefits. For, and same thing with like YouTube, content creators there, they can reap benefits and grow their audience. But the platform that's growing and that's actually spreading virally is YouTube. It's the App Store. They're basically silent in the background. And the difference is the media that's being shared or being promoted on that platform, that's an immunity reduction technique. Like, for example, if you're showing people all across the world the same ad over and over again, you're going to get a percentage of people who act on it, and you're going to get a percentage of people who don't act on it and are immune. If you're continuing to refresh your copy, if you're continuing to refresh your offer, it's the same offer. It's looking different. It's appealing to different people. And more and more people will act on that fresh one instead. Same thing with the content and the viral media being pushed on these platforms. It is the YouTube player, for example, that's going viral, actually. It's kind of like a strain of a virus that has evolved to resist a certain drug. But it is still the same virus at its core. It's just, you know, reducing the, the measures or, or countering the measures of immunity in some way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it, it does. Uh, although uh, all the talk about viruses probably <laughs> during these times has, has probably uh, gotten, gotten to a few people. But I do love to hear, yeah, kind of the, the B2B approach to the virality and that, you know, there are really very many uh, examples. Slack, as you mentioned, the big start was a perfect one. Um, have you been able to incorporate any sort of virality in growth flow? So we have recently gone into beta with a couple of features. Um, one of them will use open virality. It's a wholesale marketplace allowing our wholesale customers and our retail customers to connect to make sales. We do manage the inventory on both sides of the transaction. So those transactions can take place in real time without, without anything being out of stock, without anything um, being you know just no longer, maybe they're running out of inventory or they're close to it. Uh, they're not going to have to worry about that occurring like it does on on some of the current solutions. That's one piece. We also don't charge per seat in Growflow. A lot of B2B companies do make a mistake of, of charging per seat, which is unfortunate because it makes the user think twice before inviting collaborators to use the platform with them. By doing so, we encourage our customers to invite everybody in their company who can gain value in one way, shape, or form by some of the the so many things that our platform does, if they were to go work elsewhere, they're already pre-trained in the platform. So it's more likely that that new operation adopts it as a tool. So those are a couple small ways that we do, we do have virality built into the product. Another way, an engine that, that uh, we call uh, viral satisfaction, it's actually something that uh, you see with the very few fantastic customer support experiences out there. When people expect something very painful and negative and a company provides a dramatically different experience so much so that it's noteworthy and they decide to share it. That's one that we've wanted to create from day one. All of our, our customer support team members are former operators themselves. They were working you know, for some of our customer companies, uh, for example. 
And so they speak the language. They know exactly what pain the customer goes through. We don't outsource it at all. They're all you know, onshore talent that have experience in the industry and they know exactly what problems the customer's experiencing and the customers feel that. And they don't get that from, you know, from other companies in the space or elsewhere. So that becomes a noteworthy thing for them and that's pretty exciting to see. Yeah, and uh, I really did like uh, your point about per seat pricing as well. It's a very common thing uh, to, to do per seat pricing. Slack does uh, it as well, if I'm not mistaken. I'm, you know, do you feel that that's somewhat of a, of a flaw in their business model or, or does it make sense to do it after you've built some sort of virality and then to kind of change? Uh, what do you think? No, I actually think it's smart the way that they've done it. They, so, And I did make a generalization per seat can be negative if that's like, for example, Chart.io, an analytics tool, B2B data dashboard, business intelligence, they charge per seat from day one. And it reduces the number of people that can be exposed to the platform before there's like dramatic feature adoption and before there's retention hooks that are into everybody. Slack is free for the first several users and, and for most of the core features. And it's not until it becomes a core part of the communication framework for a company that they begin to charge. And even when they begin to charge, it's a very low price. So it actually eases the user into some of that pain um, little by little. So that's something that is a way around the kind of per seat pricing because they're basically charging a per seat model to act as a determinant of the magnitude of use. And they also charge by, I think there's like a certain number of messages that can be, or at least at one point there, there was, and some features, some administrative features can only be accessed by a pro like paying customers. So there are other aspects of product value that can be unlocked with their pricing. So they've done it in a very elegant way that I think has actually encouraged virality rather than inhibited. Yeah, it's a great distinction. Yeah, Slack uh, Slack is free. Uh, I, I use it myself. I have a team of uh, 20 or so people, but we don't pay anything. But I, if you want to be able to invite guests, I think, things like that, then it, it's premium. But at that point, you're already committed to the product. So it's not really a, a problem with charging you more for it. So awesome, Travis, speaking about virality, uh, learning a little bit more about the cannabis industry. Definitely learned a lot and uh, love to have you let users know, listeners know where they can find you, uh, learn more about you, find your book. Yeah, the book is on Amazon. It's wherever books are sold, really. Any any online book retailer, it should be there. I have no idea how many brick-and-mortar retailers carry Viral Hero today, but I know almost all the online ones carry Viral Hero, so check it out. It's reasonably priced, and it could be incredibly helpful. You can find me. I mean, I'm on Instagram, at Travis Steffen, two Fs, two Es. I'm not super active on social media, just as a disclaimer. I'm not an influencer. I'm an entrepreneur. So I, I try oftentimes will delete all my social media for months at a time and um, just try to focus because those are very smart people that are engineering addiction into those products. They're people like me who have done that. And, and I see that and it works. And I recognize that in myself. So I try to limit it. So you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm also on there. That's probably the platform where I accept everyone's requests. So those are the the main places where you can find me. I'm on Twitter, but I only really post on Twitter through Instagram. So it doesn't really count, but uh, <laughs> so fair enough. So LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, obviously your book viral here on Amazon. Definitely take a look at that. And thanks so much for being on the show, giving us uh, a little bit of extra expertise. Thanks for having me. 
seeing your competitor outrank you on the first page of Google sucks, especially knowing that 92% of all traffic goes to results on the first page. Getting quality backlinks for your website is hard. Not with shortlist.io. We build highly relevant, contextual, and most importantly, clean backlinks for your business to help you crush the competition. Ready to start? Get shortlisted on search engines now and visit shortlist.io. That's S-H-O-R-T-L-I-S-T dot I-O. Thanks for listening to the How We Solve podcast. Dominate your market and crush the competition with our step-by-step playbooks. Subscribe right now in your favorite podcast player or visit howwesolve.com.